Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, recession fears are back in vogue. The worst ISM manufacturing reading in a decade was followed by a three-year low in services. Our guests will discuss the strength of the economy and how worried markets should actually be. And if you're wondering if we saw any crazy things in markets this week, come on. Of course we did. So we will close out the episode with the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Sarah, I'm going to give you one hint for mine. All right. Give us a hint. The Hamptons. The Hamptons. The All Hamptons. right. You know where I'm going with that? I, I don't. This is always how it goes. You give us a hint. I have no idea where you're going with it. And then we have to wait uh, 25 right. minutes to Everyone's hear it at the end of the show. Right. Right. Now we all have to wait. But remember, we do have our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. You have any questions? For us, you want to call in, tell us about the crazy things that you guys have seen in markets, give us a call, leave us a voicemail. It's 646-324-3490, and we may even play it on the show. So, Sarah, uh, one of the things I do before every show is I like to look up the biographies of our guests. And I got to say, uh, our first guest, I, I haven't seen anything quite like this. Um, this is quite I always, the lead up. <laughs> I, always, I always look for what letters they may have after their name and sort of what degrees they have. And boy, I've never seen anything like this. She is a CFP, which we all know is a certified financial planner. She's also a chartered alternative investment analyst, a certified investment management analyst, and a chartered financial consultant. She has not one but two master's degrees. And a law degree. Clearly an underachiever. An underachiever. <laughs> I would love to know her budget on textbooks and tuition. Um, <laughs> but we're. it all leads up to this final crowning achievement of her career is appearing on the What Goes Up podcast. Of and course. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I assume your business card is like, you know, letters after name continued on the back or something well, compliance really tries to limit you to the number of letters you have. So luckily, they've they've um, they've curtailed any kind of interest in in expanding on business cards. <laughs> then I looked up our our second guest's bio, and I felt a little bit better. I mean, he's he's got a good a good resume too. Uh, Cornell guy, right? Yes, Cornell guy. And one of the things he's certified in is standard first aid from the American Red Cross, which I did not know we could claim on a resume. I got the same thing. Wow. I'm putting it on there. I don't know if we get to put the was letters earned here at Bloomberg, by the that way. Was? That'll yes. be a qualification for everyone who comes on the podcast from right. here That's, on out. I, I, I feel safer already. The chest Me too. Of the dummy. <laughs> Christina, I don't know if you're, you've got your first aid certification. I was a lifeguard, but that lapsed many years ago. And so <laughs> I feel very, very safe right now that if I were to have any kind of issue, you'd all know we're what to do. Hands. 
But uh, Christina, let's start with you. Well, you had a, a uh, really interesting piece out on the Invesco blog uh, headline, New- News versus Noise, Assessing the Market Impact of Three Major Headlines. Really interesting take. Uh, I wanted to go through a, a few of the things. One, obviously, is the big story you cannot avoid in the news, uh, the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. And you put that in sort of the, the noise category. It's not really something that should necessarily affect the markets. But there's always a but, and I think there's always a risk that this could uh, begin to affect markets, especially when you start to think of, well, uh, does this damage Joe Biden? Does it make Elizabeth Warren more of the the front runner? So walk us through, uh, you know, when could this story move from that noise category into the news that really could affect the markets? I think it's going to take a long time for it to be eligible to move from noise to something that really matters. Um, because at this juncture, what we're really doing is going through a fact-finding um, investigation. And I think everyone, uh, you know, almost everyone assumes that even if the House were to impeach, that you wouldn't see a conviction in the Senate. So the whole issue becomes moot. But you're right, there can be some peripheral damage to other candidates in the process of this fact-finding investigation and all the media attention that it's getting. Um, The reality is, though, that we have no idea who the nominee is going to be for the Democratic Party. And uh, and so um, one can assume that the most pro-growth candidate on the Democratic side is Joe Biden. But I would give a, a Put a big asterisk after that because we just haven't heard enough from the candidates. The only candidate willing to really get out there in terms of in-depth policies on so many different issues is Elizabeth Warren. That's right. So that's causing a little concern on the part of of capitalists, uh, members, you know, on the part of Wall Street. Um, But we haven't yet heard from other candidates. And perhaps we could be surprised by some some pro-growth policies. Certainly, I think one positive for Joe Biden is he suggests that if he were to uh, become president, he would end the trade war and we would go back to a a pre-trade war kind of relationship with China, which I think would be viewed very positively. Nick Collis of DataTrack, who is a former podcast guest, sent out an email this week pointing out the fact that At this time in 2015, ahead of the 2016 presidential elections, Ben Carson and Donald Trump were even in the polls. I mean, when you take that into account, how difficult is it to actually even think about any election risks to markets? Because so much could change from here on out. Well, that's exactly right. And that's why even if we were to see a different president, no matter what their policy position is, Uh, That would not be that material without looking at the composition of Congress. So it is very hard to define what we would actually see come January 2021. Now, the one headline that I think you agree is is less noise, more actual news that we have to worry about is obviously the the trade tensions and the back and forth. Um, A lot of people I've heard have offered the theory that, well, this impeachment risk sort of puts the pressure on Donald Trump to agree to a watered-down deal uh, a little bit sooner than he may have uh, otherwise. Um, At the same time, he tweeted this week that, uh, oh boy, look at what this impeachment is doing to the stock market. So he seems to be trying to to push the narrative that it's the impeachment that's causing the volatility in the markets. Are the two related? I mean, can, can the impeachment threat actually get us to a trade deal sooner, do you think? Or is it, is it just crazy to even try to predict what is going to happen in this this situation? 
Well, I think what the impeachment threat does is it creates fatter tails. Uh, It increases the likelihood of extreme outcomes, whether it is greater likelihood that the U.S. takes minor concessions from China and calls it a deal, or um, we could see something moving in the opposite direction where the U.S. takes a very extreme, aggressive position with China, something along the lines of the news report from Bloomberg last week on capital controls and the U.S. mulling that banning or restricting of investments in China. So I think that that uh, impeachment does um, does matter in in that it could cause an outsized reaction one way or the other in terms of the U.S.'s trade policy. Sarah, if you're wondering why I'm smiling, it's because I just had the headline, Donald Trump and fatter tails uh, pop into my head. <laughs> I, I think we might have to go with that. <laughs> I think uh, we're bringing you back. Like, how many years? <laughs> uh, Peter, let's uh, let's bring you in here a little bit because a lot of the economic data we've seen this week, it kind of looks like the economy needs a little first aid. You see what I did there? Yeah, really, so really making these jokes today. <laughs> that was really clever. <laughs> that was good, right? Thank you. But walk us through the, all the releases we've seen this week. What is sort of the bottom line takeaway uh, from the ISM uh, manufacturing services, ADP? Uh, what, what you know? What's your your sort of end of the week uh, assessment of what the economy is doing? Right. The three numbers that got a lot of attention first was the ISM manufacturing, which came in at like a 10-year low. And then we had the ISM services, which was uh, something like a three-year low, but that was still above 50. So we have manufacturing basically in a recession, services, which is bigger, bigger, more important part of the economy, hanging in above 50, and the question really being, which pulls which, right? Does does manufacturing pull services down or is the overall strength of the consumer as reflected in the services ISM enough to kind of get businesses feeling more optimistic? And I would say what will make the difference between those two scenarios is probably politics. And uh, if, if you include trade and politics, which I do, I think that what's happening now with with uh, the U.S.-China trade tensions are much more about the politics of Xi Jinping and Donald Trump than they are about any underlying economic issues. So, and that's far more unknowable than you know broad economic trends. So, yeah, I, I'm just agreeing with Christina. What happens with trade is going to be really, really important over the next few months, Christina. The big question all along really has been, as Peter mentioned, how long can you have services and the consumer hang in there while you do see the manufacturing sector languish a bit? This week, I've heard many people bring up the word recession once again, even after a month in which it really kind of fell off the back and wasn't mentioned as much. Do you think at this point it's still a bit dramatic and it's more about slowing growth? Or do you think recession fears are actually valid at this point in time? I think it is a bit dramatic. Uh, It was just a shocker. Um, You know, markets had gone on quite merrily throughout um, the end of August and through September. Uh, not dissimilar to when I um, put on my first pair of, of um, pants after the summer, after probably a, being a little, going a little too easy on my diet and <laughs> drinking a little too much. And then it was this huge shock. And, I, you know, I've got to get on a workout program. And, and so very similarly, we had this, this ISM manufacturing print that reminded everyone 
that, hey, we're actually part of a trade war. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the Eurozone and Japan and China that are being hurt by this, but actually it is having an impact on the U.S. So um, at this juncture, I expect our base case is that we see a deceleration in the U.S. economy, but that we don't go into recession in the next year. However, so much of that is dictated by where the trade war goes from here. If it accelerates, uh, if it gets worse, we're likely to see more damage to the U.S. economy. Now, I've seen analyses that focus in on the actual impact of tariffs, but it's not that. The big issue, of course, is the psychological dimension. It's creating economic policy uncertainty, which discourages business investment. And we've seen companies, I mean, really, it's been reported in the Federal Reserve Beige Book for over a year that companies have pulled back on spending plans. Now, first to go, of course, is CapEx. But then oftentimes, if it lasts long enough, this state of economic policy uncertainty, we see it impact jobs. And that's where it becomes an issue because then it filters over into um, the consumer side and impacts consumers' ability to spend. That's why it's so important for us to focus in on consumer metrics right now. You know, another big story this week was the U.S. won a bit of a victory at the World Trade Organization, uh, which allowed them to proceed with tariffs on some uh, imports from from Europe. Uh, the number I saw was only seven and a half billion, but it's uh, headline catching items: Scotch, <laughs> Irish whiskey, whiskey, <laughs> French wine. I mean, uh, sort of hitting hitting you uh, where it counts. <laughs> um, you know, seven and a half billion, it's kind of a drop in the bucket of the economy. But is there a knock on effect here as far as uh, is this a ratcheting up of tensions with Europe? And do we have to worry about uh, reaction uh, from Europe? I don't think so. Uh, just because this is actually sanctioned um, right, right. tariffs, this is the way the U.S. should be pursuing its trade disagreements, its trade grievances, is through the WTO. And so I look at this very differently than the kind of tariffs that the U.S. decided unilaterally to levy against other countries. Put in a different bucket. Certainly it's going to give uh, the Eurozone some pain, but keep in mind that there are also going to, there's also going to be a decision about Boeing subsidies. So it's not a one-sided um, a decision we just haven't gotten the outcome, the full outcome. Peter, Christina mentioned that we have seen trade weigh on business confidence. When it comes to those consumer metrics, where do we actually stand right now? I mean, we keep hearing people say that the consumer is carrying the economy yeah. on its back. What yeah. does the picture actually look like? Well, let's start with the obvious, which is we have 3.7% unemployment. Right. It's really historically low. We've sort of gotten used to it because it's been going on for a while, but... This is really just almost unheard of, and, and the beauty is that it's occurring without inflation. Um, inflation is actually below the Fed's target. Usually, if uh, that the Fed would would have expected by now that if inflation, if unemployment ever got this low, we would have had an outburst of inflation. So, consumers are in a great, great position here, and I, th- I think what's important to keep that in mind because we we tend to focus on the negative, but there's a huge positive here. And consumers, again, are the bulk of the economy. So uh, consumer sentiment is pretty decent. The stock market, we you know we keep looking at this every time it comes down, but we're not that far away from historic highs uh, on the major indices. So there's a lot to like. And I'll just throw in a um, Bloomberg Economics uh, came out with a report today about the outlook for the U.S. economy over the next 12 months. Only 
prediction of a risk of recession in the next 12 months. That's based on a survey or based no, on a model? That's or? their model, yeah. 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 And, and a lot of it has to do with the confidence in the consumer. For a lot of these models, though, that's still a pretty high number, right? I mean, I'm, the, the New York Fed uh, model, I mean, it's only, it only like 40 looks at or so. one yield curve, but right. it's- uh, I don't think it's ever gotten above like 30 something without a recession yeah. following. I mean, uh, by the time it hits a really alarming- Then you're in trouble, I agree. Another b- widely watched indicator, of course, is the yield curve. And when the yield curve uh, between the twos and the tens went uh, inverted, everybody panicked. Well, it's not inverted anymore. It's actually in positive territory. So, you know, I, 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 I you can easily- write a story, tell a story of a pending recession, but you can also tell a story that maybe things will be okay. Yeah. Depends what your editor asks for, I guess. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Seeing such a divergence in two scenarios that you could potentially see playing out, what do you actually advise clients to do at this point in time, especially when so much of it seems to hang on the back of what happens with trade, which is so, so difficult to predict? Well, we need to encourage investors to take a long look at their portfolios, have a long time horizon. So for those that can do that, that enables them that perspective to really put on blinders not listen to the noise because we know that over time, usually equities turn in a strong performance with more volatility, but they turn in a strong performance. So if you can wait a long time, um, usually you're rewarded by being uh, by having exposure to risk assets. That's particularly so in an environment where the Fed is accommodative. Um, we are late cycle, but it is an abnormal late cycle because usually late cycles are characterized by central bank tightening, and that is not the case. The central bank is actually getting more accommodative. Um, just this week, we saw you know expectations go up um, significantly, and and I think that um, that speaks to uh, a very um, positive environment for risk assets. So um, so to put it simply, expect more volatility. Be very well diversified, um, and that includes not just equities and fixed income, but alternatives, and be well diversified within those three buckets um, and and try to drown out the noise. That is such great advice. You hear it so often. Uh, if you're a long-term investor, don't even look at your 401k. Uh, just ignore the, the noise. Do people really listen to that, though, or do, do you find clients just can't, can't help but peek at that, those numbers? I think when the headlines become alarming enough, Clients can't help but worry, and that is completely understandable. Look at 2008, 2009, 
Um, there was just so much alarm, and I think it took many by surprise that things got so bad so quickly. So that creates a hypersensitivity uh, to what's going on now. But the reality is, had someone um, put on, um, you know, put on blinders back then and ridden through it, right. they probably would not have even uh, realized uh, how bad things got before they got better. I do want to ask, in the same post that Mike mentioned at the beginning of the show, I saw that you also wrote that investors should take advantage of opportunities created by downward volatility in order to acquire oversold assets such as Chinese stocks. Now, I feel like that's kind of an interesting take. Chinese stocks, why? And also what other areas do you feel like at this point are oversold, but have enough positivity going forward that it's worth it to hop in. And if I can butt in too, how should a U.S. investor approach the Chinese stock market? I mean, uh, ETFs or Alibaba, you know, uh, how would you go about it? Well, uh, first, let me say that Chinese stocks look attractive because they've been beaten down for a while. Um, When the U.S.-China trade war started, there was uh, conventional wisdom that suggested that the U.S. would win and China would lose a trade war. And that caused a real sell-off in Chinese stocks. And they've really been depressed for a while now. Valuations are very attractive. I think there's a growing recognition that there are no winners in a trade war and that, in fact, China may be in a better position given its ability to throw all kinds of stimulus at its economy, whether it's fiscal or monetary, versus what the, what the U.S. has at its, its disposal, which is not as many tools to stimulate its economy. And so that, to me, creates an environment where Chinese stocks um, are opportunities, especially if one has a long enough time horizon. Now, how do you access Chinese stocks? Well, it's very interesting, but um, you know, A shares could be one way to do that in this environment. It's starting to look more attractive. Um, beyond just Chinese stocks, I, I would focus in on emerging markets, equities in general, uh, as well as uh, EM debt, just because of the yields. Um, we are in a world of low yields, and it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon, although it might get lower. And so we're going to have to sniff out whatever opportunities we can in terms of yield. That's going to take us to dividend-paying stocks, but it'll also take us to EM debt, which um, relative to historical um, uh, st- historical uh, yields looks pretty good right now. Any particular countries to look at or sovereign corporates? or? Well, I, I think you can really run the, run the gamut and, and have exposure to both sovereigns and corporates. Um, but for sovereigns, I would focus in on Asia EM. I have a question about that. This sounds a little bit like reaching for yield, um, being dissatisfied with what conventional assets give you and saying, well, I'll go to some more obscure corners of the investing world. And of course, that can turn out really badly. What about the alternative of just saying, okay, I'm going to have to live with the fact that yields are kind of low and that'll just, that's just my life. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like a very happy life. (laughs) Well, you haven't given a great set of options, but if you want, if, if you're willing to take lower yields, then you're going to have to save more. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But I would say that going out on the, on the risk curve, so to speak, um, moving into higher yielding asset classes, as long as you're well diversified, can, um, can make sense. Uh, if, you, if you're adding U.S. municipals, high-yield municipals, as well as EM debt, 
Um, you're getting a, a well-diversified array of yielding uh, debt. And as so, long as the correlations don't go to one. As long as the correlations <laughs> don't go to one. But I will tell you that one big headwind has been removed from emerging markets equities, and that is balance sheet normalization. Mm -hmm. That was creating a huge liquidity suck, and that is going away. Mm -hmm. I'm going all 100-year Argentina bonds. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> entire portfolio. <laughs> that 100%. sounds very safe and yeah. natural. I will yeah. tell you that is not advocated. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a joke for anyone out there who cannot take a joke. Or it was completely serious for our listeners in Argentina. <laughs> do, we, do we have some sort of um, a footnote we can read right now, a compliance footnote on? Yeah, right, right. Read uh, all the footnotes. Do not listen to Mike Regan, I think, is the main footnote. We'll put an asterisk uh, in the description. <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> Peter, real quickly, before we get to the crazy things, I have to ask you about this piece you have in Business Week. Everyone has a wealth number. What's yours? And the lead is really funny. You say, the world needs a more precise way to describe wealth. Millionaire is too broad, covering everyone from random pikers with a scant one million in net worth all the way up to people just shy of billionaires. Billionaire has the same problem. And, and yeah, the point being, yeah. you know, what's it mean to be a millionaire or billionaire right. anymore? So, so tell us real quickly what you did with this. You basically created a scale. A scale. A scale, which is based on logarithms and said, okay, look, uh, if you're a million, one million dollars is 10 to the sixth power dollars. So you're a six. Uh $1,000 is 10 to the third, so you're a three. And so your net worth, it can be boiled down to a single number. Um, if you're worth one penny, that's 10 to the negative second, so you're a minus two. That's kind of low. And then the richest people in the world, and there are really only two of them in this category, Bill Gates and Jeffrey Bezos, are 11s. They have more than $100 billion in net worth. So that's the fun of it is like, well, everybody's somewhere on that scale. Even if you're uh, have liabilities exceeding your assets. So the logarithm is undefined. I just arbitrarily stuck them into the minus two category. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. Especially, Fun I hope that, that catches on. It is yeah. catching on. It's like amazing. People should look at it on the internet. Uh, like everybody's saying, oh, what's your, what's your, what's your number? <laughs> it's been pretty fun, yeah. All right, well, we will not disclose our numbers. Uh, no, no, no. On this show, we will disclose the craziest things we've seen As in we markets this week. Yeah. Is it true that Invesco is an 11 in terms of the amount of in assets <laughs> under management? 900-something <laughs> billion? Actually, we're at a, a, a close to 1.2 trillion. So you're a 12. A 12. Amazing. Wow. Nice. They beat Bezos. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. About those crazy things. Sarah, I believe we got a call into the What Goes Up hotline. Is that true? We did. It's from Morgan Hill. He's an investment associate at Providence Wealth Advisors in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So let's take a listen. Uh, I noticed on Tuesday that Charles Schwab Interactive Brokers actually announced that they're issuing a uh, commission-free trading platform for stocks, ETFs, and uh, options online. And what was crazy about it, that as soon as that announcement came out, both of their uh, tickers as well as TD Ameritrade and other uh, brokers dropped at least 9%. So the market interpreted that as a negative, I guess, but I uh, just thought it was crazy. So It was, and then we saw TD Ameritrade follow, we saw E-Trade follow, and that just really plays into that whole narrative of what we've seen of these different brokerages just in a race to the bottom. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty, uh, it was a pretty big story. And the question people always ask me about that is, well, how do these guys make money? And, you know, the answer is, well, net interest margin like banks, you know, people have cash sitting there and they make money off of those balances. But also, 
what I think is really interesting is the payment for order flow. You know, these firms basically sell their order flow to electronic market makers, aka high speed traders. So it, I, I'll be curious if that whole controversy over HFT comes back. People always love talking and ragging on <laughs> HFT, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it gets its a day in the sun again. Well, thanks to the caller. That's a that's a good one. Sarah, can you top the zero commission fees? Uh, I don't know if I can, but I think this is a pretty good one. I think we could say there's been some craziness going on over at Credit Suisse. Uh, there was this investigation disclosed in which one of the former heads of the wealth management unit left and... The CEO had sent a private investigator, a detective after him. Well, Bloomberg had a great story out this week. And what they disclosed was that there was one day um, when the two parties uh, were at the same party together and they got in a fight supposedly over gardening And they make it out to seem as if ever since that moment, there's been this back and forth between the two, which is one criticized the equality of the other's garden. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So uh, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable. I guess you asked for gardening leave after that. that (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, the groans. These need a better studio audience here. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, can you top the great garden wars of Zurich? It's kind of a weird one. I went to a... A book party for Stephen Schwartzman this week. He has a new book coming out called What It Takes. And he spoke at the New York Public Library in the Schwartzman building, as it happens. Um, (laughs) What a coincidence. Yeah. And at the end of it, he uh, was asked about what Bernie Sanders said, which is that I don't think billionaires should exist. So uh, impromptu, he shot back. I don't think Bernie Sanders should exist. (laughs) Bold. I wrote a story about this and it was getting a lot of traffic. And then suddenly we had this terrible news about Bernie Sanders having stents put in, um, and I'm sure he's going to be fine, but it was a little scary, and so we kind of submerged that story. It was not in good taste. Not the best timing, not the best timing. But thankfully, they have come out now and said Bernie Sanders should be fine. Yeah, he'll which be is at, great. He'll be at the next debate, et yes. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, you won't get a lecture from me. I've never been famous for my good taste. I mean, <laughs> I would, I would tell. What is Schwartzman's, what, a seven or an eight on your scale? Yeah, he's a 10. A 10, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. up there. But he's not a 12. <laughs> no. Christina, did they uh, inform you of our our, uh, tradition here with the craziest thing? Yes, but I'm not as interesting, certainly, as the stories you have. So I have to apologize (laughs) in advance. But this this seemed pretty crazy to me, and it just has to do with Fed funds futures. If you look at the CME Fed Watch tool, in just a week, and of course, during the course of that week, we got the ISM manufacturing number and we got the ISM services number. But in the course of a week, um, we went from less than 50% expecting a rate cut at the end of the month to a full 88% or so expecting a rate cut at the end of the month. So talk about a story where bad is good. Right. Um, markets always seem to find a way to find a silver lining, and this seems to be it. Yeah, especially to move that close to the meeting, I think, is, is pretty rare that, to see those those moves that close. Especially given how much dissension we've right. heard from the Fed, mm-hmm. um, re- the reluctance with which some members actually voted for a cut in September. Very interesting. There's no doubt that uh, the meeting this month will be very, very well watched. <laughs> and and hopefully they will only have plastic utensils because, you know, we don't want to see any kind of a violence breakout in the course of a Fed meeting that could be very charged. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> These are all good, crazy things. I, I, 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think Hamptons. I might have. Hamptons, come might've on, won. what is it? Right. Just tell us already. All right, Sarah, <laughs> I, I consider you a trendy New Yorker. That's that's safe to say. Uh, right? I think you might be trendy, going. Uh, you might be giving me some there, no, you're um, trendy but I'll New take Yorker. it and run with it. Fr- from a bridge and tunnel guy like myself, <laughs> you're, you're a trendy. So this is straight out of the headlines from the New York Post. I, I'm not making this up, by the way. The hottest new psychedelic drug trend among trendy New Yorkers is illegal toad venom. What? Illegal toad venom. So apparently you take a Colorado River toad and you have to milk the venom out of it. Then you try. I won't ask how. <laughs> I don't ask. <laughs> it's like that uh, Robert De Niro. I'm not like, sure. Can, can, you, you, can you milk me? <laughs> I'm not sure you calling me a trendy New Yorker is really much of a compliment have anymore. Smoking, <laughs> have, have you been smoking any toads? Absolutely not. So you, you drive into a paste and you smoke it. And I remember, Peter, when we were kids, people used to joke about. Uh, licking toads, I think, was the same idea. But now they, they've taken it. I'm just surprised it's not vaping toads. <laughs> That's next. But here's this one guy sitting cross-legged on a blanket in his Soho apartment. Parrot Paul inhaled toad venom smoke through a glass stem pipe. I saw my younger self with my parents and ex-boyfriends in places I'd been hurt. I, I experienced 45 minutes of shooting through the universe and being reborn. So this is the crazy story I've this ever uh, seen. And obviously it's very, of course... If you're going to have a psychedelic drug trend, it's going to be popular in the the Hamptons. Uh, Recently, the Post reports 21 people in white robes gathered at a mansion in the Hamptons to smoke the substance with the same shaman that Paul used. So you may ask, well, what does this have to do with markets? Yeah, what does this have to do with markets? And the answer is not nothing really. (laughs) It's it's such a great story. Mike just wanted to bring it up. But it's a black market, right? But Mike, if I had known that, that there was such a liberal interpretation of uh, this the craziest, cheating a little bit. craziest I, sure market event of the week, I would have told you the story about the squirrel that actually asked a hiker for help what? Um, for its injured baby. What? Yes, absolutely. This was uh, in the news in the last week. Um, in Pulaski, Virginia, a hiker was walking uh, on a trail. A squirrel came out and wouldn't let it pass and brought it to, it tugged on the hiker's pants. And brought oh it to its injured um, small uh, baby squirrel, um, which was being menaced by a cat. This is beautiful. Isn't this? I mean, this is one of those feel-good moments yeah. that's not just crazy, but is heartwarming. Oh, all you, is good in the world now. But did it really ask for help? I was assuming the hiker was smoking some toad venom or something. <laughs> that could have been the case. But, all right. All right. All well, right. That's a good one, too. But my, this is a black market, so it is. I, I okay. Think it's, I think I'll, I'll give you that. Crazy. It's a stretch. It's right. a stretch. But it was well, crazy, so I'll give you that. And the squirrel relates to first aid. <laughs> so it all, yeah, it all it's ties all back together in the end. It's all coming together. All coming together. Uh, with that said, though, Christina Hooper, Peter Coy, it was so great having you both on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest Christina Hooper is at Christina Hooper. And Peter Coy is at Peter Coy. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.